Last week, we started a series, uh, I Love My Church series. We talked about uh, Pilate's question, what is truth? Uh, and so today, we're going to move into the second lesson, Psalm 95. If you'd like to turn there as a starting place, Psalm 95. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I am absolutely amazed at the number of first-time guests that uh, show up here at First Baptist every single week, and uh, so thankful for that. And in the seat back in front of you is one of these little cards. It's hiding. It's not real obvious. You have to dig deeply. If you get a piece of gum, put it back. Yeah, I know. Uh, That was gross. But in there are the Connect cards. Take one of those. If you're a first-time guest, put it in the uh, the offering box in the back when you leave. And we're so thankful to have you with us today. Thanks for coming. Be with us. Hope you'll come back and see us again. Has anyone here ever seen the missionary film Itao? Pat has. Tim has. Yeah, his daughter has. All right. Am I overstating it to say it's one of the most emotional missionary films you'll ever see in your entire life because it's and I can't remember where it's set Tim Pat where's in New Guinea is that correct yeah New Guinea and uh, um, and so all of these these folks in this particular tribe have never been exposed to the gospel before and as the missionary is trying to give the gospel to him it's so hard to connect with totally different cultures and trying to convey sin and the wages of sin and death is a universal thing. But uh, the idea of a God and a personal God who would love us so much, he would send his only begotten son to die on the cross. And, and so it took months and months and months for him to kind of uh, lay a, a basis for even trying to communicate with these folks. And then all of a sudden there was a breakthrough And that breakthrough moment when the people realized that the God of creation, the God of the universes, that that particular God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that that he died in our place and that by his death and his resurrection, we can have everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. These people in New Guinea begin shouting and jumping up and down. I mean, for a couple of hours, isn't it, Tim? For a couple of hours, they're jumping up and down. I'd be up here like, hey, folks, settle down. I need to finish my message. But they're jumping up and down, and they're worshiping God in their way. Now, some people might look at that, and they'd say, you know, they're just way too emotional. (laughs) Have you noticed we're all kind of different? If you haven't noticed, look around. We're all kind of different, you know. We all have different emotional makeups. We all have different physical makeups. We all have different temperaments. So if, if, if we have, um, you know, a little bit later when we have uh, some, some juice or whatever, coffee, if, if you get a glass and you take a drink and you start laughing, you're happy, and someone else takes a drink and they start crying because they're sad, and somebody else takes a drink and looks at those other two people and says, wonder what's wrong with them, and they don't do either, Who gets the drink? All of them do. But because of their different emotional makeups, they may respond differently. So so in this idea of worship wars, and that's the title of today's message, in this idea of worship wars, there are different styles. People have different ways of conveying their love for the Lord. Uh, And in Psalm 95, verse 6, it says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his land. So here we begin talking about worship. Let us worship. Let's bow down. Let's kneel before our maker. He's our God. We're the people. We're the sheep of his hand. Worship, William Temple said, is the submission of all of our nature to God. 
the last 20 years or so, maybe longer than that now, actually, there's been kind of a, um, uh, the, the Sunday morning music part, like Micah and everybody just provided for us, has been called worship. And then when the preacher comes up, that's kind of like, oh, hey, yeah, it's time. You know, so the worship is, takes place in 20 or 25 minutes, and then there's the message. But that's not accurate at all, because worship ought to be everything that we do. I mean, from the opening prayer, the opening song, the, I mean, everything we do ought to be an act of worship out of love for the Lord. And, and the, the, the primary quality of a really great music leader who leads in the music part of the worship is not his ability or her ability to be able to sing or play instruments, but the greatest ability is for them to be able to lead us into God's presence. That's the greatest ability that they have. Uh, so... Uh, that said, we have a great music worship leader and team, and uh, they, they should not, in my opinion, be as concerned about the quality of music as they are about the authenticity, the character, and the consistency of the walk of every per- person who's up here presenting and leading us in the music part of the worship. To me, that's all important. A person can have the most melodious voice, sing in perfect harmony, be in, on tune all the time. And live like the devil through the week, and they should not be leading worship, in my opinion. Uh, conversely, somebody who maybe is not necessarily that well at singing, that good at singing, uh, but if they have the character and the life and the consistency, and, and they are the person in that particular uh, church, then, then they're the ones that I want to hear from. That, the worship is so much more than just a few songs, a couple of prayers, and then doing a sermon. It is taking our affection off the things that we've been occupied with all week, and putting those affections upon our God. And worship is, as we hope the kids remember, blowing kisses to God. In fact, I was praying this morning uh, about this message, and I was praying, and I, I started out, and I prayed a little acrostic. I try to pray it all the time. The book of Acts, uh, use that as an acrostic, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Uh, it's, it's widely used by a lot of people, but it helps me channel and you know, kind of focus in on what I need to be talking to God about. And I began by saying, Lord, I love you, because that's a, an expression of adoration. And, and a thought dawned on me, and, and, I, and at first I rejected it while I was praying. The thought, do I love God or do I love the idea of God? And, and at first I said, what, what is that? That's, you know, that's not, they're not God thinking about it. Do we love the idea of God or do we really love God? It's the difference in loving the idea of having a wife and loving my wife. And so do we really love God? And so I took a few more extra moments to express my love for God and for what he's done for me and what he means to me. Worship is the act of humbling ourselves, praising him, renewing our promises to him daily, uh, and, and seeking to honor him. In fact, if our hearts are not right before God, listen to this, all of our efforts are in vain. If our hearts are not right, our efforts are in vain. Where do you get that, preacher? Well, how about Amos chapter 5, verse 21? Here's what God said to the nation of Israel who had the temple and the sacrificial system and the feasts and all of that. He said, I hate, that's a strong word, I hate all your show and pretense. Wow. 
the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. The, the festivals were given by God. How could he hate that which he gave? I, I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy. Well, he doesn't hate the festivals. He hated the hypocrisy, the knowing what they should have done and what they should have been and going through the form and the motion but not really having a heart for it. I hate the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. And listen, verse 22, I will not accept your burnt offerings. I mean, folks, if a person often offered a bull, it was a very valuable sacrifice. Whether the person's heart was right or not, it was, a, it was a, an expense to that person. But the contempt of God for hypocrisy is so great, he says, I won't even accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your hymns of praise. What? They are only noise to my ears. I will not listen to your music no matter how lovely it is. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, a river of righteous living that will never run dry. That's what God wants from us. A mighty flood of justice, a river of righteous living that never runs out. It just keeps on keeping on. Worship is not something that we do just on Sundays. Shouldn't be. Worship is something that we do every single day of the week. It's the evidence of a transformed life. We had a couple of weeks ago, I'm still excited about the, the, the guys that got baptized a couple of weeks ago. We gave out certificates today. I told, uh, I told Denise, uh, be sure to put that certificate in a real heavy frame. If Neil gives her a rough time, she can beat him with it to remind him of the day when he made that uh, baptism and made that choice. So ladies... Jack's the only safe one. He's not married, so he doesn't have to worry about that. His mom can put it in a heavy frame, all right? But it's the evidence of a transformed life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, in one translation, So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable, as opposed to the dead sacrifices that were filled with hypocrisy, the sacrifices that cost the people something, but their hearts were not right, and and they weren't really identifying with that sacrifice. He said, by way of contrast, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. You, you put your body's living sacrifice on an altar every single day. You give yourself to God fully acceptable. This is the way to worship him, it says. Don't copy the behavior or the customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. We've got a whole city full of people who've been transformed because of Comic-Con. They're transformed into Captain America and Thor and all kinds of bizarre things that I don't even have a clue who they are. If it's not Superman, forget it. Everybody else is a ripoff, right, after Superman. I mean, you know, Clark Kent and all that. But, but they've been transformed. But the Holy Spirit wants to transform you and me. We're the original transformers, you know? We're the, we're the original ones because we were walking one way and then we turned around 180 degrees and began walking the other way because of the power of Jesus Christ to change our lives. And, and God has taken some of us and changed completely our vocabularies, changed completely our ways of life, changed completely our desires and goals in life. And he will change you, that new person, by changing the way that you think. He'll wire you differently. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing, and perfect. So by correct worship, we become the light of the world. We got the lighthouse back here on the back wall. Bill, did you see that lighthouse back there? 
look back there. Does that look familiar or what? Yeah. Okay. We got the lighthouse of the world. That light shines. What's the lighthouse for us? Keep people from the dangers of the rocks of the shoreline. And what's that lighthouse represent? Jesus is the lighthouse. The dangers of going into eternity without Jesus Christ. And we become light. We reflect his light by living a transformed life. So let's ask ourselves these questions this morning. Does our worship, your worship personally, does it honor God? Does your worship spiritually inspire, uplift, and transform you? And thirdly, is it powerful enough to draw guests closer to an encounter with Jesus Christ? Or does it turn people off? If we're inauthentic, people will see through us. And we'll turn people away from God. So that was the introduction. So we're in big trouble unless I really hurry up. Point one, we gather for the worship to glorify God. We gather for worship to glorify God. News flash. Everybody ready for this? Breaking news. You know, every night now, every channel has breaking news. A dog crossed the street in broad daylight the other day. You know, I mean, what? they got to have some breaking news. Here's a news flash for you. Worship is not for you. And it's not for me. It's for our Heavenly Father. Worship's not about us. It's about Him. The psalmist said in Psalm 29, 2, Give unto the Lord the glory do unto his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Okay, we're going to dig deep here. How many remember when the Padres won the pennant in 1984? Whoa, we got some in 1984, back in the last century, okay. And, and, and remember when they beat the Cubs? Remember that? And then remember when they went and they met the Tigers? Yeah, and they lost But thousands and thousands of fans went to the queue late, late, late at night when they returned from that series. And it wasn't very convenient to be there late at night, but they weren't doing it for themselves. They were doing it for the team. And folks, when we're worshiping the proper way, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for our team, for God. We're doing it for God's work, for the glory of God. So... Too many of us ask, or too many of us think that we're the audience. Did we like it? How many here have preferences in music? Yeah? I have preferences in music. Um, I won't tell you what they are right now. I have preferences, and you have preferences, whether it's in church or whether it's secular, we have preferences, and and so we think about, did we like it? Was it good for me? What did I get out of it? And I have to say, wait a minute, worship is for him, not for us. One of the the most fun worship services I've ever been in was at MCRD with uh, uh, Days of Elijah with all those Marines locking arms and rocking back and forth, running down to the front and, and, uh, and singing and swaying back and forth the days of Elijah. And I'll tell you something, that movie, if you ever get to see that film, Itao, and you see those people jumping up and down for a couple of hours, praising God and thanking him, it'll emotionally move you. And you know what? Whether you're turned off by it or not doesn't make one little bit of difference because God was excited about that. Worship should include at least two ingredients, probably many more, but at least two, awe. There ought to be awe. It it ought to be like meeting a dignitary, only 10,000 times more so. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. I want you to try to get this picture, uh, this this throne, high, lifted up, his train filled. I mean, his presence was was all over that temple. And above it were seraphim. These are the highest of created angels. And each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full. Of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the sound of the voice of them that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Isaiah, Woe, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm telling you something. There ought to be awe when we come into God's presence. He's not the guy next door, He's not the old man upstairs. He's not Father Time. He's not Santa Claus. He is Lord God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth, who breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. You became a living soul. He's the one who knits you together in your mother's womb. He's the one who speaks and universes appear. There ought to be an awe when we go into a presence, but there ought, to, there ought to also be joy. It doesn't have to, having awe doesn't have to rule out joy. In Acts chapter 2, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and they worshiped together at the temple each day, and they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with what? Great joy and generosity. The psalmist said, make a joyful noise unto the Lord in Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know you that the Lord, he is God. And it is he that made us, not we ourselves. And we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. The second thing about worship, though, there is a source. uh, It's a source of controversy today. Styles of worship, and I'm talking about more than music here. Some of, some of us come from liturgical churches, very high, uh, uh, high liturgy, very formal. Uh, maybe you were brought up in a church when you walked in, it was real quiet. You went and you took a seat and you prayed, and, and there was not a lot of fellowshipping and talking and backslapping and yarharing and having it. There wasn't a lot of that that went on. And you kind of feel like maybe it's irreverent to do that. Others came from churches where you maybe, uh, you know, rolled down the aisles and had sawdust on the aisles and, and shouted and jumped up and down and clapped your hands and, and, and all that. Uh, one considers the other dead and the other considers them uh, irreverent. And one says, get rid of the drums. The other says, get rid of the organs. And one says, hymns forever. And the other says, choruses and praise music forever. And by the way, there are verses to go with each style. Did you know that? Psalm 86, Psalm 66, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. So that's, the, you know, there's reverence there. Hebrews 12, 28, Let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. That's, that's very proper. Psalm 47, 1, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to the Lord with cries of joy. Well, that doesn't fly in our church, preacher. Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing uh, for joy. Spread your protection over them. For those who love your name may rejoice with you. So, So who is right in their choice of styles? Me. That's what we think. But you know what? Different styles attract different people. 
if the message is being preached, if the gospel is being given, and, and there are different, there are different, different churches all over San Diego with all kinds of different styles. And, and you know what? If we're preaching the gospel, we're not in competition. We're working together so that people can be reached. Our church here wouldn't, wouldn't probably reach those people in New Guinea. Not the way that we currently, at least back you know, when Itaú was made. So, so there has to be different. That's what you guys do, isn't it? It's, it's different cultures. You, you explain about cultures and adapting to cultures and what to expect and so on. So, uh, so there is, I, I want you to look at this controversy. And, and is it really about your preference or my preference or is it about worshiping God? Third thing is this. Genuine worship inspires the worship. Genuine worship. Worship inspires the worshiper. David said in Psalm 122, 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. When we truly worship, a byproduct is an inspiration and a renewed commitment to God. In our worship, there should be an awareness of the presence of God. People come to church looking sometimes. Looking, is there really anything to this? They want to experience God if, in fact, that can be uh, something that can be done. Uh, there's still, I believe, a, a God-shaped hole or vacuum in every person's life, and, and they can fill it with anything and everything, but until they have God there and a relationship with God, the God who loved them and created them and seeks them out, they're never going to be whole. And Sullivan was... Helen Keller's faithful teacher for so many years, faithful friend also. And you you know that Helen Keller couldn't see, couldn't hear. And and the process, if you've seen the film um, about her life story or maybe read the book or whatever, of how they began to communicate with her because she was out of control as a young child, not able to see, not able to hear. And her friend, Ann Sullivan, devoted her life to Helen Keller. One day she said, today... I'm going to teach you about God. And Helen Keller, who couldn't speak and couldn't hear, said, Good, I've been thinking about him for a long time. Because God, I believe, has placed in everyone's heart a desire to know something about him, to know him. Or at least he's, he's let him know that he's there. So the whole worship is is valuable. Singing, preaching, communion, invitation. No wonder Paul said, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hands on this one. Do you ever feel like not going to church? Yeah, I have. And I... I was a preacher for 41 years, and sometimes I didn't want to go. I knew what the message was, and I just said, I don't want to go hear that. It's not going to be that good. Bread preacher's going to lay an egg today. I don't want to go hear this. But you know what? I can't ever, I can't ever remember in 41 years at, at Ocean View, I can't ever remember a time when I didn't want to go, and I went, and I came back that I wasn't glad that I went. Sunday morning, we had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Thursday night, Saturday morning, we had like, you know, my dad said, why don't you just take a cot up there and live up there? You're always up there. You know what? There's worse places to live. Number four, four expectations from worship, and I'll be through. A sense of God's presence. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord lifted up on a throne high and holy, and his train filled the temple. A popular song in the 70s was, surely the presence of the Lord 
is in this place. And you know what? If the Lord is not in this place, we should be somewhere else. If the Lord is not here today, and if he's not welcome today, if we're not inviting him here, if we're not expecting to hear from him today, we'd be better off at the beach or at the mountains or at home drinking coffee, eating bagels than being in God's house. Church ought to be a place where God is present. And by the way, I've got a personal thing here. Church should never be boring. I actually think it's a sin for church to be boring. It shouldn't be. It should not be. I mean, we're talking about the most exciting thing in the whole wide world. We're talking about the most exciting people and and person in the whole wide world. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about things that last forever. Everything else in this world is temporary. We're talking about eternal life that goes on forever and ever and ever without end. It should not be boring, nor should it be all about entertainment. So there's a balance there. The second thing is there should be a conviction of our sinfulness. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's what Isaiah said. Paul went through a process, and I didn't look up the verses now, but he starts out, I, I, I know three different places in the, in the New Testament. He, he concludes with this statement, I am the chief of sinners. He doesn't start out with that. Chronologically, he says, yeah, I'm a sinner of whatever. But he winds up saying, I'm the worst there is, because he realized the conviction of sin. A few years back at the showing of Jesus' film in Mozambique, conviction and remorse and repentance came upon the people so profoundly that they couldn't finish the end of the film for more than 30 minutes. People were were just overwhelmed. There should be a conviction of our sinfulness. There should be a joyful reminder of God's grace because in Christ there is both cleansing and forgiveness. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's paid for. It's covered. The blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. So in Mozambique, after 30 minutes of not being able to go forward because the people were overwhelmed and crushed by the conviction of their sin, the village saw how it ended. And when Jesus rose from the dead in that film, they were overjoyed. And 500 people showed up at the next church service where they usually had 40. Fourth thing is there should be an inspiration to serve. Whom shall I send and who shall go for me? I don't know if you know it, but there are people in this church, God's, God's tapping them, you on the shoulder and saying, you know what? I've got a plan for you. I've got a mission for you. I've got a goal for you. I've got ministry for you. It could be ministry right here. It could be ministry across the town. It could be ministry across the seas. But God's got a plan. Listen to him. Listen for the voice of whom shall I send, who will go for me. And when God says that to you, say, here I am. Send me. Did I say last point? Here's another last point. Evangelism is a byproduct of worship. In Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, when they worshiped together in the temple every day, they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And every day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. Every day. Evangelism took place because the people were worshiping God in spirit and truth, blowing kisses to Him. It transformed their lives they became a lighthouse for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. 
the most important thing, most powerful thing perhaps that a non-Christian can see us do is worship authentically. A man once gave this testimony. He said, the biggest disappointment of my life as a kid was one day when I saw a tent going up in our community and I thought it was a circus. But I walked in only to discover it was a revival. He said, one of the biggest disappointments of my adult life was to walk into a church expecting a revival and seeing it was just a a circus. God help us not to either be a funeral dirge or a circus, but to worship God in spirit and in truth and the power that he wants to give to us. Would you bow your heads, please? I ask the kids to blow a kiss to someone in the audience a little while ago. I ask you now to think about your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And if you are a child of God, if you're born again, if you've received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and you know that He's your Savior, I want you to right now think about why you love Him and let Him know that right now. Lord, I love you. Here's why I love you. Let him know that. Blow kisses to him by doing that. If you're here this morning and you have never received Christ as your Savior, I want you to know something. Upon the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you that he loved you so much that he sent his son to be tortured, to be nailed to a cross, to be buried in a borrowed grave, and to rise again on the third day so that you don't have to go to hell and you don't have to experience the pain of shame and regret. You can be forgiven and cleansed. Forgiven and cleansed. I don't care what you've done. There's a whole list of people in the Bible who were murderers and adulterers and everything else who came to Jesus Christ and were forgiven and cleansed. And if you'd like Christ to be your Savior right now, would you just pray in your own heart these words to him? Just pray, and, and by the way, these words are not some magic formula, and if you say them just right, then you're automatically presto bingo a Christian. It, it's got to come from your heart. It's got to be real. But if you want Christ to be your Lord and Savior, would you talk to him right now? Would you say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is your son and that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he was buried and on the third day rose again. And I believe that you'll forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so I ask you right now to do that work in my life. Change me. Make me a new person in Christ. I trust you as best I know how, as sincerely as I know how right now. With every head bowed, another moment, not going to embarrass anybody. If you just now prayed that prayer and you meant it, best you know how, would you raise your hand, hold it up for just a moment. God bless you and you and you and you. Yes. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Our Father, we rejoice and we thank you for this faith that you've given to these to say this prayer. 
And I pray, God, that you would give them more faith even, more faith to take a stand for you and to be transformed by your Holy Spirit and by his power. Thank you for what you're going to do in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.